Episode 72 of No Guitar is Safe, featuring Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Elliot Easton. Yes, we can say that now. Congratulations, Elliot. Is brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player, play better, sound better. Okay, check it out. What an incredible rock and roll story you're about to hear today. I mean, just imagine it for yourself. Imagine you're like 20 or 21 years old. Your roommate is like a sound guy, and he wants to go respond to some ad in the newspaper for some club band that needs a sound person. You tag along, you check out the band, you kind of like them. You hook up with them, and man, flash forward to the present 2018 and you're being inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame with those same cats and you've sold tens of millions of records and your music hit song after hit song is part of the fabric of american life over the past 30 or 40 years whatever it's been if that's your story well you might be elliot easton from the cars Elliot is on the show today. Thank you, Elliot. He's going to play so much guitar for you and show you how he created all those parts and not just the great solos, but also how he thinks about constructing the perfect part underneath the vocal. We all love that about Elliot Easton. He's just an American treasure. That's how I think of him. And honestly, when I heard a few months ago that Elliot Easton and the Cars were going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which they were just two or three weeks ago, I was kind of surprised. I was like, you mean they're not already in the Hall of Fame? I mean, they've had so much success and they're just such an iconic band. It was just a matter of time. And this was their year, along with Bon Jovi, Dire Straits, Nina Simone, Moody Blues, and also the great Sister Rosetta Tharp. By the way, if you haven't seen Sister Rosetta Tharp's video, it's always been one of my favorite videos on YouTube. I think it's called Up Above My Head. She's playing uh, SG Les Paul, I think it is, with a choir behind her singing and just tearing it. It's one of the great rock and roll moments, even though technically it's probably gospel. But it rocks. Check out that video. So, yes, big shout out to Michael Melinda, editor-in-chief of Guitar Player Magazine, because while I have known Elliot Easton for years and years now, it's all through Mike Melinda. And Mike made this happen. This interview you're about to hear and this guitar hang with this Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Mike made it happen with just a phone call, and I really appreciate that. Mike, thanks for the assist. And yes, of course, we're going to get into the Cars music, as I said, but you've been hearing a track from the empty hearts. Which is Elliot's newest band, great band, kind of a pop rock super group, which he will tell you about. Great songs. I'm very thankful to Elliot for having me over at his beautiful house near the Santa Monica Mountains in sunny Southern California and showing me his Rock and Roll Hall of Fame trophy and all his other cool stuff, including more lefty guitars than you've ever dreamed existed. Yeah, of course, Elliot Easton, he has the lefty guitars. The lefty, if you're wondering where the lefty guitars are, they're at Elliot's house. And he's just got all this cool stuff in this beautiful room. He's kind of a, he's kind of a neat freak in a good way. Just everything's 
really organized. Amps slide out on little drawers. <laughs> so cool. Guitars stashed in secret cabinets. It's just really neat. And he's plugging through his small pedal board and a Fender Princeton Reverb, playing one of his favorite Les Pauls, favorite new ones. I'm playing a Telecaster through his little Marshall Tube combo. Cool little boutique thing. I barely even play. I just let Elliot play and we listen to a lot of cool music and we trace it from there. All right, so let's fire up the guitar chopper, head over to Elliot's house. When I turn on the Zoom recorder, I think we're talking about which strings Elliot uses on which guitars. My name is Jude Gold. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy it, please tell a friend about it and share it one way or another or write a little review. Say hi to me on Twitter at Jude underscore gold or say hi on No Guitar Is Safe Facebook page. Keep that inspiration alive till you're 95. To quote one of my favorite Cars songs, let's go. Most of my life, I put tens on Gibson scale and yeah. and uh, like you know nines on Fender, and I've switched to like nines or nine point five Daddarios on the Gibson because I like to do those two string Amos Garrett licks and shit like that, yeah. you know the, the pedal steel licks and stuff. Oh yeah. You know or yeah. Or say F minor. Yeah. That, yeah. that kind of stuff or. Bending in two different directions, like a tritone resolution. Cool. So wait, how does that how does that resolve? Well, here we see. Right. And then four chord. Yeah, yeah. And then five. Yeah, he's one of one of your early guys, Amos Garrett, right? Yeah, big influence. Yeah. Which are we rolling? Yeah, yeah. Roll. Well, I, I think you know there were two guys that were like, or actually a few with me, but uh, Jerry Miller from Obi Grape, I loved, and Amos. All of his stuff, he he played in Paul Butterfield's Better Days. He was yeah. with Ian and Sylvia's Great Speckled Bird, Jeff and Maria Moldauer. I collected whatever I could of his because his playing was so unique. And pre-Orleans John Hall. Uh, he played with Taj for a while and he did a solo record. And it was just, you know, relating to like guitar players of my generation. It wasn't Clapton, Beck, and Page. You know what I mean? Right. I, I, in a, in a, I, Clapton I, I adore and I'm a huge Cream fan and Disraeli Gears is one of, still one of my all-time favorite albums. I put it right up there. But I was drawn a lot more to American music and, and guys like, um, you mentioned Cornell Dupree and the King Curtis records. Yeah. You know, I, I'd play along with those records and it would teach me like accompaniment. And you know, do a little. You know, like I those kind of like six sliding six yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Um, I was wondering where you got that from because sometimes it sounds country and sometimes it sounds yeah, yeah. jazzy. Um, Mike Bloomfield was a huge guy for me. Uh, I'm, I probably saw The Dead like 30 times between 69 and 71. What? Yeah, that you wouldn't guess from me. 
but I, you know. And did you like the culture and the scene and the the vibe? Well, I, you know, I was a little hippie radical and marching on Washington and working for Eugene McCarthy to try to end the war in Vietnam and all that stuff. And awesome. So politically, I, I, I was probably more active than I am now. Um, but uh, I just loved, I thought they were incredible in those days, you know, with, with Pigpen and with the two drummers. and They weren't consistent. You know, sometimes they were awful. But when it worked, they would practically levitate. When right. it was good, it was like crazy. You know, they were like wild pirates and stuff. And I, yeah. I, I just, I thought they were terrific, you know. By American Beauty, I'd lost interest. You well, know, it's interesting that. how often these bands pop up that people wouldn't expect. Like uh, last week on this show was Zach Wilde from Ozzy, and he, he's given props to the dead. Who would think that the world's most well, brutal heavy metal player? Right. <laughs> Well, you know, as far as like jamming and like jam bands and, le- and learning about improvisation, like in a rock context, Dark Star is like a textbook. I mean, you know, from Live Dead, it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a clinic in yeah. like jamming and, and extrapolating ideas. And so, you know, you have to listen with your ears and not like your eyes and like, you know, it's like popular to say that all the dead suck or you know, make jokes about it, but you either get it or you don't. Hey, I'm with you. You know, I got, I used to tour with JGB, which featured four original members of the Jerry Garcia band. Oh, you know, like John Kahn and those guys. He was there right before I was. Yeah, all those cats. And I, I got into the scene. You know. I mean, you know, as a kid, I, I played a lot of that stuff in like high school band and stuff. <laughs> so yeah, that, man, that guitar is ringing too. What are you playing there for us today? Uh, I'm playing a, a 2018 uh, historic RO, which is the 1960 version with the slimmer neck. The last Gibson Les Paul ever built. No, I'm just kidding. Pro- that was a probably joke. one of them. Well, definitely one of them. Um, I think yeah. We know they're they're still around. I'm not trying to. Yeah. No. No. They'll yeah. be. They'll, they're, they'll, they'll, they're the guitars gonna, will still be made, folks. Gibson is not going. The, yeah. the the brand is too valuable for somebody not to you know. But um, this guitar, ha- I, I send it to um, my favorite guitar shop. It's in it's in Kentucky called RS Guitar Works. This room is great. You've got everything like in secret drawers and cabinets. <laughs> everything slides out, and there it is. It's like the Bat Cave or something. But yeah, I know where it all is. Bat Cave, if it was like designed by by a lunatic, Austin Powers, <laughs> Some, somebody's chic. <laughs> you know, I just surround myself with stuff that I like. And yeah, that's a um, cool commitment that you have going to send it all the way to Kentucky and back. You must really love what they do. What, what, what do I they do. do to your guitar? <laughs> What's that? What do they do to the Les Pauls? Well, they put um, they put uh, the complete new wiring harness, fifties oh, yeah. wiring, which retains the highs better when you turn down. They they do they put in uh, what they call super pots, but these are lefty pots, lefty audio taper, and um, Jensen oil and paper caps, fifties wiring. Yeah. My favorite pickups these uh, the Lindy Fraylin True Sixties, which was like his favorite pair based on his favorite set of 1960 PAFs and. Um, and generally go over the guitar. You know, it's got tone pros nice. here, here, and here. You know, I, when when they get done with it, I feel like it's ready to go gigging and, you know, song. battle. Yeah. So so let me tell you about where I was last night. I was at the uh, the Whiskey on Sunset Boulevard. Every Tuesday night, they have the ultimate jam night, all-star. 
people and everyone else, you know, right. and some schmoes like me. <laughs> and we play. And uh, last night, it was a celebration of the 2018 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. Oh, no. And they were playing all the music. And, they, you know, they played some Nina Simone and some Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yeah, and I, love I played her. I played a little Dire Straits. But most of the tunes that made it on the set list were Cars tunes, man. Is that and so? I should have yeah, been there. They, oh, I was going to send you some clips, you know. I figured, <laughs> uh, you know, it doesn't do it justice on the cell phone, but it was packed. And all these guitar players have so much love for you and all oh, your solos, man. So sweet. I was, I was just so delighted to tell them. Wow. Guess who I'm hanging out with tomorrow to interview yeah. for No Guitar oh. Is Safe? And it's amazing that people just, you know, your solos, people know them note for note. Like, you know, Mitch Perry was playing, wow. he was playing just what I needed exactly. It was just amazing to see everybody playing your licks. People know your solos, they can sing them, you know. And uh, That's really, it's a blessing. I mean, it's, a, yeah. you know, I started out as a really young kid and to like get to that point where people like know your stuff and like it and everything, it's really wonderful. Yeah. Maybe you could, could you indulge me? I want to show you that people, I actually know... Just what I needed. I've been playing that forever. Let's see how you play it. Let's see if we play it together, this, even remotely the same way. Okay. Okay. One, two, three. Not too bad. I definitely wow. screwed up a couple things, but... Actually, it's... I was now, that the... thing... I don't know if you played that on your record. Yeah, I don't... Yeah. <laughs> I saw... Yeah, I definitely saw you play that on the on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame show. And... Yeah. It's so killer. And other people were playing other of your songs. Matt Fuller from Puddle of Mud was there, and he was playing. I was like, Matt, you did pretty good, but you should have played it lefty. He did amazingly, but I was just rapping. <laughs> if you really wanted to do it, you should have done it southpaw like Elliot. And he was <laughs> laughing. And then he told me, you know what? I am left-handed, and when I first started playing guitar, this is Matt, I almost became a lefty player, but now I'm a righty. I mean, oh, wow. I'm sure you've been asked about this before, but what... Is it like when you're starting off as lefty? Did you have pressure to play righty? And how did you ultimately end up playing um, lefty? I know, but like I have a lot of people that I know that are lefties that play righty. Yeah. Well, Nofflerly is one of them. Um, with me, it was like I got my first guitar-shaped object was like a, a Mickey Mouse ukulele. And I always just held it this way. I was like, you know, at three years old, there's pictures of me with my plastic guitar and I'm holding it lefty. So I always did. I remember one time my dad trying to like make me into a righty by like you know putting the ball in the other hand. My mother started yelling yeah. at him to leave him alone and stuff. But mm -hmm. I mean, I don't really find it to be a disadvantage beyond there aren't as many instruments available. But as you can see, that hasn't really slowed me down too but much. But do you think I know <laughs> it's comedy? <laughs> He's talking about the ninety-six guitars behind us that are all lefties, and then both. the garage is full too. <laughs> what about like? For someone like their their hammer hand or their their you know their main strong arm is their pick hand. Usually, is it weird for someone if they were going to play lefty and not have that? Like I if think they were so. Play righty, but their left hand was well. It, maybe you'll agree. I I I think all the action is in the picking hand, like the, yeah. the precision. It's easy to move your fingers across the fingerboard, but to strike the note at the same exact time, or, or like flat picking bluegrass, or it's all about your picking yeah. hand. So. 
it's your dominant hand. For a righty, it's your right hand. For a lefty, it's your left hand. Making a lefty play righty changes, you know, your dominant hand into your fretting hand. And I mean, I guess, you know, however you learn, that's what you're used to. But it seems logical to me that if you're left-handed, it should be the opposite of what a righty does. So I pick with yeah. my left hand. You know? I'm with you on that. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, I guess. You know, I, 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 I think, you know, like the, the real precision stuff comes in, in the picking hand. Now, of course, I got to congratulate you on this thing that just happened. And we're oh, just, yeah. before I turn on the recorder, you showed me the trophy. Yeah. You are a rock and roll hall of famer. I know. The last time I talked to somebody who had just been inducted, it was Angus and God bless him, Malcolm Young. Yeah, rest in peace. Rest in peace. And I was talking, and I talked to them for like 90 minutes on the phone. It was great. And it was funny. They told me that... They're a riot, those guys. They're a riot. They're like, ironically, this is the sort of place that, you know, with the white tablecloths and the tuxedos that would normally kick us out. Right. And now we're here. Right. What was the gig like for you playing there? It was exciting. I mean, you know, there was a certain amount of stress because of, you know, the pressure and all the stuff that you had, you know, the tension and... Uh, you know, uh, being in, you know, it's such a high profile thing. But as far as like the whole thing, it was kind of like dreamlike. It's like, is this really happening? And, you know, I kind of get like a little choked up because I think about starting as a three-year-old kid seeing Elvis on TV in 56 and leading all the way to to that night. And uh, it's amazing, you know, like I've been playing like my whole life. So to end up like being like, recognized that way is making some kind of contribution to the music is like really an honor yeah fantastic what was the the hang like now it's interesting that uh last night i played sultans of swing at the club in part of this tribute yeah. the whiskey but i understand mark didn't make the scene mark knopfler from dire Nor his brother yeah neither knopfler was there oh, really? uh just two guys and uh their speech was kind of um downbeat you know and I think they felt a little bad about the whole situation and, you know, that they didn't play. And so I, I really don't know, like, why or anything like that. Uh, and I wouldn't want to comment it on it. Oh, it's not family stuff and none of my business. But for whatever reason, uh, Mark wasn't there. And so the re- Dire Straits wasn't there. Now, it was, um, what, what kind of rig do you bring to that? You have them bring a backline marshal or something? or? Uh, yeah, I, I asked for uh, two JCM 800 half stacks. What I do is I plug into the low sensitivity input and I set it on a, a clean setting, almost like a big yeah. fat giant deluxe. And then I get my, I had my bigger pedal board, but it, it has the same overdrives, uh, the Zen drive and the MI crunch box. And um, I get my distortion and overdrive from the pedals uh, because yeah. I, I couldn't crank a Marshall loud enough to where it would start doing what it does. Right. But anyway, I asked the JCM 800s. They gave me TSL 2000s, the triple super leads. But that has yeah. a good clean channel too. So that's what I ended up using with my board. Do you run the stereo or anything? Or you just like to get the No, I didn't. Even, no, actually, I just used one and, and had a spare. I didn't even oh, yeah. run them You're both. Because right. uh, it, it, was, it was too loud. Do you run through two cabinets sometimes it's not even louder sometimes it just sounds wider wider in yeah. this particular case i didn't yeah not for any like big decision or anything but i just didn't happen to it was sounding real good and I, after the the guys set it up and i just kind of left it because it sounded good your speech was really awesome oh uh, thank you it was uh, heartfelt yeah it seemed like you're really genuinely moved to I be was. there I, well i was and you know as i said in the speech you know my mom was a juilliard trained singer and she 
you know, gave me the gift of music and she's no longer around. So I, but, it, you know, she gave up her career, you know, so uh, to raise a family. So I always kind of like felt like I was doing this for both of us. And so I got a little choked up when I mentioned my mom, you know. Yeah, of course. I mean, now I my think... daughter is a great singer. So and is she Sydney Easton? Yes. Oh, cool. Yes. You ever, play, you ever play with your daughter? Oh, yeah. Like we oh, oh, through the years. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and she'd go to auditions for plays, and they have to. She'd have to sing a song, and I'd bring an acoustic guitar and back her up and stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, we did. Uh, I'll stand by you. One time, she wanted to do Dear Prudence, and we did that. And, you know, and I'd play all the instruments and program a little drum machine and stuff. I love the stuff that you, your parts are so great. Before we even before we leave, just what I needed. Like, aren't you playing like full bar chords on that part? Uh, well, <laughs> like a couple spots. I don't know. Maybe that was Rick, or I think. Well, Rick goes, we'll go, but I'm doing yeah. it from the seventh fret. I, what, who's doing this? Someone's doing that. Oh, later on. Yeah, that's me. I never played it at the 12th fret. And then it goes... Now, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, I gave you a ride. I mean, you might remember the ride. I drove you from Guitar Player Headquarters to your hotel, and we were just shooting the ball. I remember. And I said, you know, I always love about that song is the three chord is major, and it has that funny note. It's I Want to Hold Your Hand, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Tell us that. Well, Rick wrote it. I didn't. Right. I don't know where the inspiration came from. <laughs> but I thought I thought you said that he was took inspiration from that song. No, I just noticed that it was the same, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And then yeah. it goes off somewhere else, but I I don't know yeah. that I don't think he realized it, and I didn't realize it until some time later. Wow, you know. Isn't it funny how songs can have, they take a little inspiration, but they're so different. I always think But that, the, the song yeah. was presented to us with that chord, so I, you know, that's how we yeah. wrote it. First time I met you was at, was it maybe the second, I don't know, whenever, was at our, we had the Guitar Superstar competition. Yes, it, it did. And first time we did that was actually at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That was Mike Melinda's brainchild. Mm -hmm. Your buddy, Mike, editor-in-chief of Guitar Player yeah, Magazine. I love Mike. <laughs> kind of like American Idol for young guitar players to come right. and, and throw down. Right. You came on board around the third year or something in San Francisco, and I was really... Was it the Old Waldorf or the Great American Music Hall? I can't, that was Great American Music Hall. Yeah. I did and a few with with uh, with Satch and Vi were there. Yeah, Satch, Vi. I can remember who was on which year. Cotton, Lukather. 
Lukather I was I did with and and Mark Mike Varney was there I remember yeah and everyone would be so supportive one thing I really appreciated about you is like one guy got up there and you know a lot of them were playing a lot of notes mm. and it came you know it came time for your judges comments and you're like <laughs> why so many notes I mean I just you were so honest you're like I'm just not feeling 10 million notes or I forget exactly what your words yeah. were but <laughs> well I'll tell you I, I bet I know what they were because I always feel the same way about about that. I mean, I'm obviously I'm not a shredder, but I don't know if it's because of facility or not, but it's because all the people I loved so much played more economically, but I don't believe in playing faster than you can think. I like to mean every note I play. And th- when you're running a scale at so fast, you're really just running a scale or playing a pattern or something. Yeah. It's not really something you're thinking about or putting into every note. You know, right. I, I mean, the analogy for me would be like someone like Miles Davis versus someone like Maynard Ferguson or Al Hurt playing a million notes. And to me, Miles is more like Picasso, you know, seven lines and it's done and it's right. there and it's perfect. And um, I just seem to like lean towards that in any of the arts, you know, economy and every bit means something, whether it's a book or a solo or a painting, whatever it is. I mean, I don't like a lot of all that filigree and 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 you know to me it's like you know practicing in public in a way right on some level and i don't i'm not judging it like for some people it's great and i also feel as though you know everybody is wired differently and and people have you know their, their their own nervous system and some people are predisposed to be able to play fast and are usually that fast within six months of playing guitar because it's just how they're wired where I could practice from now until doomsday and I'll never be a shredder because that's not how I'm wired right so you have a built-in speed I think in your body and I also appreciated just how honest you were about that in that moment in front of the whole thing being filmed it was well I wouldn't really be doing anybody much of a service if I yeah you know just said great 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 you know I was there to critique so that's what I did. And it's only opinion, you know. Oh, yeah. Everyone, you know, everyone's got an opinion. Yep. Now, The Cars, the original album, the f- debut album mm. called The Cars, and now it's been re-released, of course, and I think it has the demo tracks on it, too, the famous demo. Yeah, demo. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that demo? Well, uh, yeah. We did a lot, like, live two-track demos uh, before we made the record at, at a small studio in Massachusetts. Oh, those are live in? No overdubs, really? Not really, no. Oh, that's so cool. And um, as I said in the speech, uh, a DJ at WBCN in Boston named Maxanne Sartori, she was like top DJ there, she started playing our demo tape in heavy rotation. And it was getting reported in radio tip sheets. And and uh, they were reporting spins of, of that song. So again, like I described it, you'd get like the Gavin report or one of those radio things that shows what the major markets are playing in, you know, around the country. And so it might say, like, Aerosmith, you know, Back in the Saddle, Columbia, or Elton John, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, Rocket, MCA. Yeah. The Cars, Just What I Needed, Tape. <laughs> tape. Where, where, where the label should be. And so when A&R people started seeing that, they said, you know, I wonder what's going on up there in Boston with this group, The Cars. And they started flying up to check us out at the clubs and stuff. And... It led to, you know, our record deal. Street, 
so you got a hotshot producer, right? Roy Thomas Baker? Yeah. The demos were surprisingly polished to begin with. What did he add? What kind of magic? Well, I think the obvious thing is the huge layered background vocals. That, I mean, is one of his trademarks. He was just hot off doing Bohemian Rhapsody. That was 76, I think. We got him 77. Wow. The end of 77. But uh, he uh, had his technique of like, multi-layering overdubs and he had a really unique tape machine it was a 40 track on two inch tape a stevens 40 track so in the days before they could sync up 224 tracks and like things like that and yeah. of course days before digital we could have as many tracks as you want in order to achieve those thick background vocals you need a lot of tracks and so he had a 40 track machine and what we would do is before we get into like guitar overdubs or any keyboard overdubs we just record the basic track and go right into background vocals so that he had enough tracks to bounce down to. Then he'd wipe, do the next part, bounce them down. And, uh, it, you know, until it was really thick. And it was you know, pretty yeah. much always Benjamin, Greg, and myself on a mic, all singing the same part together, like the low part. Three of us singing the so low part. So unison, low part. About seven or eight times. So three times eight, that's 24 voices times three if it's a three-part harmony wow so by the time you're done you got like 60 70 voices and uh, and he'd you know he'd stereo them in a certain way where they'd blossom they'd like grow and stuff he had ways of uh, you know muting things to a certain point and they'd come in and you know like uh, like cold yeah. as ice where it goes cold and they're like unmuting parts yeah. oh really all these, you know what i'm talking yeah, about yeah, that well, like would, arpeggio I, thing yeah. I never thought about unmuting the tracks to bring yeah. them in that way. and then popping them on. And, and uh, all by hand, right? There wasn't even... Well, all by hand. And as a matter, yeah. Here's another example of like, you know, necessity being the mother invention. On Good Times Roll, you've got that... Uh, doom, doom. Yeah. Now, that's a syndrome before right. before um, the pads, the um, whatever they were. But this was the earliest one. It was called a syndrome, like synthesizer drum. On the track, David played his real tom-tom, and they decided they wanted that syndrome sound. So what Roy did was he fed David's tom-tom track through a little oritone speaker and put it on its back facing up, the speaker, and then took the syndrome pad and turned it upside down on, and put it on top of the oritone so that whenever David would strike and it would the tom-tom, it would trigger the syndrome. So it was like that's crazy. That's like, like a telephone using two cans and a string. It was physical, it physical uh, triggering. It was physical MIDI. It was before before that was around. He worked it out. Now, did he do any cool guitar stuff that you had never done before? That on that. First? Um. Well, one thing that stands out in my mind was, you know, I, I did. We were just starting out. I didn't have like a hundred guitars, right? I had two two electric guitars. I had a Les Paul Standard with DiMarzio Super Distortion humbuckers because that's what yeah. everybody was putting in there. And I had a, a 77 and a 77 Telecaster with a Bartolini high A uh, Firebird mini humbucker in the front. And I had for my sole effects pedals were a Morley Echo Volume 
like yeah. the, with the rotating metal disc produced right. the, wow. the delay for slapback and i had the early roland chorus ensemble the ce1 the cast iron yeah. gray one but roy said well you don't need to use that chorus pedal let's i'm going to show you how how we really do it and so instead of chorusing on something like say like bye bye love where you you've got like um I don't have a chorus pedal, but I'll just use a Leslie type, you know. And I would normally use my chorus pedal, but in what he- Can I hear the part some more? I love it. Um, So, Instead of using a, yeah. a pedal, he had me record the track once, and then he very slowed it down the tape slightly, real, just a, a cent or two, and had me play double it, and that created the chorus effect. That's it, amazing, it, yeah, because... It was like, you know, that's how they did it before Roland came out with the chorus. That brings up, that's a lot like what this does. Yeah, I was wanting you to tell me about that. This is a really cool pedal. Um, this is a Keeley, uh, 30 millisecond, it's called. And it's got it's got an Abbey mode. He, let me explain. Yeah. John Lennon hated doubling his vocals. And so the head engineer at Abbey Road, Ken Townsend, invented something he called ADT, or automatic double tracking. And all it was was two machines one slightly, just like we were talking about with the guitar, one at ever so slightly different speed. So when he sang it once, it was wider and sounded like he was double tracking himself. So this pedal does that. You can is a tuning knob where you can like detune yourself. It's got Abbey Road's reverb chamber, echo chamber. What? Yeah, really does. And um, I didn't realize it had echo on there as well. And the time, which goes up to yeah, which goes up to um, like thirty milliseconds. So it's kind, it's kind of a chorus sound, or it, what it really sounds like if you can, if you, if you think of like Clapton's guitar and while my guitar gently weeps, that bit of wobble. Yeah. Oh, there's the chamber. So if you go like. Because I can't get my overdrives on yeah. now. Yeah, that's a really nice chorus. It's like a tape chorus. But it's a little cooler than a chorus. Yeah, that's all just one pedal. Closer to the sound of the record because it's like the yeah. double track effect. Oh yeah, I really appreciate you showing me that. I love this. That <laughs> sounds like a. I know. It's because that reverb. Gates comes of in. hell closing there. I'm just using the reverb off the amp. That's uh, Princeton, Princeton reverb. Can't beautiful beat it. thing. Okay, we're yeah. back. <laughs> so uh, 
I mean, the parts that you create and the layers are just so wonderful, even in the I was 23 years old. Uh, that album, The Cars, I would put it kind of up there with like Fleetwood Mac rumors in the sense that most of the songs were hit songs on the radio. I mean, you got... Good times roll, just what I needed. Bye bye love. I Girl know. I've got tonight. Moving in stereo. We used to joke that we should rename it the Cars Greatest Hits, but yeah. although we only had hits after that, but um, sure did. I don't know if you know this, but I did all the guitar parts, all the overdubs in a day and a half. It took twelve days to make that record. Wow. And then nine days to mix it. A song a day he would do. Isn't that amazing? Like same with like Led Zeppelin Four or Stairway to Heaven. They did they did like three weeks or something. It was all live set. Yeah. So I already had my stuff worked out and everything, and so I just went in and just regurgitated it on tape. Now you teased me earlier by saying you might show us a little bit of uh, Best Friends Girl. Like where's where did that influence come from? I would say Bakersfield Country is part part of it. I, I was a big fan of James Burton and Roy Nichols and you know the chicken picking guys. Also, um, the Beatles song, I Will, which, you right. know, which go- I should get my Telecaster for this. Oh, should I no. grab it for you? It's right here. Still trying to get used to looking at all these guitars that are backwards. I know. We have the Tele, a, a beautiful new Telecaster with binding on the neck and block inlays. Yeah. Humbucker in the neck position. Beautiful. The, the joys of the custom shop. The blue, uh, what, what's the name of that blue finish? It's called Ice Blue Metallic. Ice Blue, it, yeah. It, it was one of the... You know, DuPont Duco colors that they offered in uh, in the 60s. Man, it's one of my favorite guitar colors. I love it, too. I think I saw you have an SG with that. Yeah, only Gibson call it Pel- Pelham Blue. Right. Okay, so right. let's make a little slap back. So back in the on the original album, did you use your Morley pedal for that slap back? Or again, did you use another tape machine? I'm sure we used a, a, like a, a tape delay. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. The thing about that is, is that the chords are just E A B. Yeah. But I'm playing through the the the, the um, relative minors. I'm doing one six two five. So instead of going E A B, I'm going E C sharp minor F sharp minor B seventh. Yeah. Wow. And of course, I will goes. It's static, you know, it doesn't change with the chords, but it definitely is reminiscent of that. I'm always amazed by like, I mean, how I interview players such as yourself with a signature sound and you could be playing through any gear and you get your sound. It sounds like you, it sounds like the record. Yeah, you know. I always love how you put that blues note in the end. 
And then Greg said, do yeah. it again. Greg, awesome. Greg said, do, do it the second time. You said that, that Greg always fostered like a the keyboard player. And yeah. There's incredible parts. Yeah. Greg Hawks. We worked he, really closely together. He said he fostered a workshop vibe to your, what do you mean by that? What I meant by like a workshop atmosphere was just that, you know, it was just a very creative atmosphere where everybody's ideas were considered and we everyone pitched in. And, you know, usually just whoever had the best idea, you know, we would go with whatever was we thought was best and we'd just kick it around you know what do you think about this you know and nobody was precious about it if I was doing a guitar solo like that and Greg said why don't you play that lick again after the you know and I I did it oh that's cool you know and we would do things like that you know why don't you go to this note instead but of course things can can get emotional and tense and high pressure in the studio even with people you work really well with have you had any of those moments yeah um the one that stands out in my mind was when I was doing the solo for Touch and Go. Uh, I had worked on that, you know, wrote the solo, worked on it in my hotel room with a cassette of the basic track. Uh, and I was really proud of it and thought, wow, this is maybe the best solo I've ever done yet. I went into the studio. This was in L.A. at Cherokee. And I played the solo and there was silence. And I thought people were going to go, yeah, man, wow. And there was silence. And... Uh, the engineer said, you know, it sounds too much like you're thinking about it. Could we try something else? And I was devastated. But I went along with it. And we, we, we got as far as trying to even do a solo. I was trying to emulate a six-string bass, a baritone guitar, and I didn't have one. So I took one of Ben's basses and played it upside down through a twin with reverb and tremolo to try to get that Wichita lineman kind of twang. Uh, and it was nothing I could do was as good as what the, what I had written and I, I was almost, I was just like in tears practically and I, I finally got frustrated I said listen guys just give me another crack of that solo that's the solo and I don't know if they were winding me up or what just to get me to that state but I was like grabbed the guitar and I played it and I was like angry and I just ripped it off and they said that's it you know you sounded like you were thinking about it right. too much before it sounded too planned out but the, when I got upset, I played it, just ripped it off in anger, actually. And, um, and, and everybody liked it then. I was like, gee. Now, who are some of your influences as far as players who write their solos out? Like, it seems like you write a lot of your solos out in advance. Yeah. Well, I think most of the guys I mentioned, you know, what I've discovered in this in the age of like CDs and stuff and bonus tracks, like even on a jazz album, you know, like here, like listen to a Wes Montgomery album or a Miles album or something, and they'll have an alternate take of something. And I was struck by how similar the solo is on t- to the Keeper version. Yeah. You think like everyone's going to be different and everything's off the top of the head, but they'd, they'd have a way of starting the solo and they do it every time or certain points in the solo they'd hit. And so um, I always, you know, I, I felt like George Harrison and Amos and some of the people, that, that, that stuff was all worked out. It's not, you know, I'm not of the school of like, we, we're like a typical rock player will play like 
just like bluesy licks in the key of the song. Yeah. You know, in the tonic, you know, if the song's in A, they'll just wail away in A. And maybe it's because I love jazz and went to Berkeley and that crap, but I like to play through the changes. I like to move with the chords. And so when you do that, it gives it more of a melodic contour. And it's more interesting than just wailing away on blues licks, which is great too. And it's fun. But I'm just saying, as far as like, like these little short pop solos in a, in a, you know, like a pop song, growing up on AM radio in the 60s, you learned how to construct a two, three minute song where there's a hook at the beginning, it comes back at the end of every chorus, you know, and you got your solo that takes yeah. off from the vocal and does its thing and sets it back down so the vocal can come back in and then fills at the end, you know. All those little things that we all take for granted, but, you know, you have to learn it somewhere. And so I, I would, you know, I would work out these solos. I'm sure every Amos solo is, is Amos Garrett. You know, those are all, when I say written, I don't mean like written on paper, but right. composed beforehand. Um, and, you know, I put a lot of thought into those things and try to tell a little story and have a little song within the song. I love it. You do and, that. And and you, that's what, that was my goal. And, and you tag um, the chord tones like you're talking about, some of the, the money notes. You hit those money notes. Right? Yeah. So you could like actually, even if you didn't hear the backing yeah. track, you could almost envision what the chords are underneath it. Now you work with another great producer, Mutt Lang. Yeah. John Mutt Lang. And, uh, Robert John Mutt Lang. Thank you. <laughs> he had it in his contract. That's how it had to be credited. Yeah, I'm going to get this right. Robert, Robert John Mutt Lang. <laughs> and of course, you can hear his influence immediately on the vocals on uh, Hello Again, right at the very yeah. beginning. He's got that signature sound. I love that solo on You can Magic. hear his, vo his voice, too. Oh, that's right. He's, he sings a lot. He, yeah, yeah, on Def Leppard and on that Cars yeah, record. Yeah. He yeah. Always Bill Collin was on this podcast, too, and we talked about a lot about Mutt Lang and mm. Hysteria. Yeah. But I love this solo on Magic that you play. Oh, yeah. Can you tell me about that solo? Did he coach that? or uh, Is that a written no, one? That I, one sounds a little more spontaneous. It is more, a little more spontaneous. We, I kind of just did that with Mutt. And, but I was getting frustrated with Mutt because we, we were there, I don't know, eight months. It took a year to make that record for no real good reason, but I don't know. But we were living in London making this record. And um, I was getting frustrated with how long everything was taking. And he'd mm -hmm. have me tune after, literally after every take. And uh, I got to a point where I just, Mutt, you tune it. I gave him the guitar sitting next to me. He said, I can't do this anymore. And I'd play what I thought was the perfect take. I said, I can't, thinking, I cannot possibly play it any better than I just did. And he'd go, oh man, not quite the one. And he'd keep going for it and going for it. This is a little going off track from talking Please. about magic, but what he was going for was the perfect track, like perfectly played, but also sounding spontaneous, right. which is kind of like contradictory terms. He wanted to sound like he just picked the guitar up off the stand and just ripped off the solo, but at the same time, it was very worked out and like a perfect solo, but he wanted spontaneity to it. He, he had these kind of 
contradictions about, you know, like he'd want clarity with bowls. <laughs> was another one of his things, you know. And like, so for like the big power chords and chords, we do like two pairs of guitars. We do a pair of like, say, Les Pauls on a chord, and then we do a pair of Telecasters. So he'd have the lows, the mids, and the highs, and he would mix that all together. So you'd get the clarity from the Telecaster, the balls from the Les Paul, and he had his clarity with balls. And, you know, seemingly contradictory terms, but when you got into his way of thinking, you understood what he was getting Well, it's interesting, at. a lot of people, especially in this magazine, Guitar Player Magazine, you'll hear people say, oh man, after anything after take two or three, you lose the spontaneity. But then you start to gain more perfection. Right. I guess his he philosophy is event. So maybe, maybe you lose the spontaneity around take six, seven, eight, maybe somewhere around take 20, you start to get both. May, well, that's what happens. That, well, that's you, what get the, you get the guitar player so frustrated that the spontaneity comes back. <laughs> he knew what he was doing. He, yeah, he, he, he knew what he was doing. As far as, you know, the psychology of a record producer and stuff like that, he, he really had it together. Um, but it just, it was so time-consuming to make that record. Anyway, the solo for Magic you were asking me about. And I remember, I remember a moment during doing that solo, and he said to me, can you do, do something like, uh, like David Gilmore? I was at my wit's end at that point. I said, what if I do something like Elliot Easton? And I got, like, pissy with him. You know, and, and he backed down a little bit, but you know, the solo's a little out of character for me. There's whammy bar stuff that I don't usually do. And, what uh, guitar was it? Okay. It was um, it was a it was a Strat that Fender had built me with a lead one pickup in the treble position, and it was a two pickup guitar and a Strat pickup in the neck. And I used that. I liked that lead one humbucker. And I played that the lead one is what I use on the touch and go solo too. So did you give him an Elliott Easton thing, or how did that end up? Where were you in well, that? it was me playing, yeah. you know. I don't even, okay. I, I haven't played it like you know, in oh, forever. Bands. I also really love your parts, like the, like, I mean, let's go. When I was a kid, I sw I knew that that song said she likes the nightlight baby. Like I pictured. Like she was afraid to sleep. Yeah, she the likes room. the nightlight. But the little parts of underneath that. really learned to craft layers of parts in these little parts that maybe there's two guitars at once yeah one guitar the there's such hooks underneath the hook i i would like make notes for myself as i would listen to to, to like the basics thinking about okay i want to do an arpeggiated uh, thing here and i'd write down arpeggios in the bridge and stuff and i just jog my memory and 
And I'd, you know, I'd come in pretty prepared most of the time, knowing what I would want to do. Because it would yeah. be terrible to go, you know, studios at that time cost a fortune. And uh, yeah. I didn't want to go in and start from nothing in the studio. I wanted to come in with at least an idea. And then if people wanted to, you know, have their opinions or put their two cents in, fine. But you got to start with something, you know. So. I love the newest Cars album, too. Move like this. It's just... I love the ear candy, man. A great three-dimensional rock pop, and it sounds just fantastic. In disguise, you think that you'd be running to the other side, yeah. So what can you do, you say? They owe me a few. Well, the Cars is an interesting band, you know. It was not a band of um, like-minded people necessarily. We were all from different parts of the country, varying in ages. It wasn't like a group of high school buddies that all liked the same records or anything like that. And I think on some level, some of the influences that people brought in were not necessarily the favorite music of somebody else in the band. And I believe that that rub uh, was part of what created the uniqueness of the sound of the band because it was nothing that we thought about or calculated or anything. It was just how the five of us sounded playing together, you know. But because we were so different, you know, we all brought a very different thing to the band. Greg with his, you know, craft work and Eno and his influences there. And we had common ground, of course. Like Greg and I were both, you know, Beatle, Beach Boys fanatics and stuff like that, Brian Wilson fans and stuff. But, you know, he would, like, go off into, you know, Klaus Schultz and, you know, electronic synth stuff, which didn't really push my buttons a whole lot. But I liked it in the cars with what we everyone else was doing. And, you know, Rick was, like, more into, like, Velvet Underground and, like, yeah. you know, things like that. Maybe Roxy music or whatever. And, and David, of course, came from the Modern Lovers. And so, you know, he had that background. And, and I'm coming from wherever I'm coming from. <laughs> It wasn't where everybody else was coming from, and it wasn't necessarily everybody's favorite aspect of the music, but like it or not, all these things were like really important to the success of the band. And it seems like you had the common goal. You all wanted to serve the song. Like It's funny yeah. to watch just what I needed be performed, and Greg, half the song, he's standing there not doing anything until his synth hook comes in. I think that's so cool. Or Rick would have Ben sing big songs. Sure. Drive, just what I needed. Yeah, whatever it... Well, those Take. guys had been partners since 68. Uh, that's how long they had been together. So they'd been together almost 10 years when yeah. the Cars formed. And they'd been through the mill together in bands in Cleveland. They played with the Outsiders for a while. Time won't let me. And then they came to New York. And they came to Boston. And that's how I met them. I went to see... I went along with a friend who had answered an ad uh, in the Boston Phoenix or the Real Paper, one of those Boston papers, for a sound man. And... Uh, he was my roommate, and I went along to the gig just for fun with him, and it turned out it was a Warner Brothers party for Foghat at a roller skating rink. Whoa. And the band, the entertainment, was this group called Richard and the Rabbits. And it was Rick, Ben, Greg, and Fuzby Morse on guitar, and Ron Riddle on drums. Good guys, very good players. But anyway, I was watching um, this band on stage, and I, I, I thought... This is the first unknown band I've seen, like in Boston, or you know, with original songs that could be hits that I could imagine on the radio, because you know, mostly you saw bands playing covers, 
And these, you know, they were doing like really, you know, I, they might have even had Bye Bye Love. I'm not sure. Right. But uh, it's a long time ago. That was 76. I remember watching the band and thinking, you know, I could do better than what that guitar player is doing because he was coming from what I perceived as a more fusion-y kind of place. And these were pop songs. I knew just what I wanted to do with them. And I didn't get a chance for a long time. What happened was my roommate got the job and he stayed with them. And the band broke up and Rick and Ben started playing as an acoustic duo at a little pub in uh, Harvard Square called The Idler. And he'd sit on stools and Rick had a Martin D28 and Ben had his Rickenbacker bass. And they sang Rick's songs. They sang How Long by Ace. They sang uh, Do It Again by Steely Dan, I remember. My roommate, who liked to play percussion, he'd get the sound set. It wasn't any big deal. It was just two guys, two mics in a little pub. Once he got that, he'd jump on stage and play congas with them. And it was that little of a thing. It was just a germ of a thing. And he was all the time telling them about his roommate who plays guitar. He said, you, got, you should hear my roommate, he's really good. And I think he overhyped me, to be <laughs> honest with you, because eventually they gave me a chance and I went over to Ben's apartment with the guitar and the first thing Ben said to me, was like, okay, play something amazing. Arms crossed. <laughs> yeah, play something amazing. So of course I couldn't play anything. I was nervous in the first place and when someone says that to you, you freeze up, you can't play at all. But eventually we relaxed and played and had a nice play together. Uh, me, uh, Ben and Rick, and played you know some Buddy Holly or whatever we played. I don't remember what songs we played, but I guess they liked what I did. So I started sitting in with them at the Idler Pub. So now it was the three of us. That morphed into a band called Captain Swing, which was just pre-Cars. Yep. And that had, had uh, Ben was off the bass and just singing lead in that band. We had a bass player. Greg hadn't come back yet. We had a different keyboard player, Danny, who now plays with Government Mule, and um, who was an old Berkeley buddy of mine. We came to the band together, and um, a different drummer. It was a good band, and Max and BCN was playing our demo, you know, even like supporting us back at that point. But we went and did a showcase at uh, the Hot Club in New York at the time, which was Max's Kansas City, which is a legendary club where. Alongside with CBGBs, a lot of the underground music scene developed there, and Patti Smith and a lot of those people like played there all the time. So we played, and we played for some of the big management companies at the time. I know Aerosmith's managers, Lieber and Krebs were there, and Kiss's manager, O'Coin, who later had Billy Idol, Bill O'Coin, came to see us. And they gave us some criticisms that we we took to heart and, and took seriously. And they said, well, it's a really good band and the songs are really good. You guys are really good, but your image is so diverse. There's Rick, you know, looking real mysterious and sleek and stuff, with sunglasses and his hair. And then, you know, the bass player looked like he could be in The Grateful Dead, you know, and there was no image. There was no... Cohesive. Co- n- or- no, yeah, n- nothing cohesive about what we wore we never talked about it even and they said you know you should really get your image together the other thing they said was is that it's too jammy you know the songs are great but you we had like long solos a lot or you go as long as you want whatever it was that era and they said you should make it more concise so we took that seriously so we went back to boston with our tail between our legs and uh and we we ended that band rick ben and i right and we got greg to come back 
we tried drummers and all the drummers were like trying to be like Billy Cobham and stuff at that time you know just press rolls and and we just wanted like somebody that played a big 2-4 beat you know 4-4 beat and we thought about David Robinson and like Roadrunner and those cool songs and it was just simple rock beat you know and at the time he was in a punk band called DMZ that was on Sire Records and he was around town so he came in and joined the band and David was an invaluable addition besides drums because he named the band he was a graphic guy and he created the logo and he worked with the art department to make the album covers you know he got Vargas to do can you know, paint the Candio cover and that was all David um, so as far as image was concerned we were still broke you know I, I was on food stamps at some point and so we decided that we would just wear black and white because it was cheap you could wear get a pair of black jeans and a black t-shirt and you'd be fine black was cool if you didn't have a lot of money you could dress okay and just wear black and eventually we added red to it and black white and red is really a strong totally thing you know it's like a certain flags certain logos yeah. and things you, black white and red was a very strong image so that was our color uh, combination that we wore maybe until the last tour we just said out of the hell with it and we wore other things but um we took we took these new york managers very seriously and we we did what they said and we pared down the songs and made them more concise we worked on our image we replaced some members with others that we felt were a better fit for what we were trying to do and that was the cars i mean you guys were serious and team players yeah well you know i mean for a couple of the guys in the band who several years older than me this was going to be their last try you know they'd been yeah. a, they'd made records they'd had record deals some of them without any you know huge success and I, I think for some of them if this band didn't fly they would have probably thrown in the towel I won't name names or anything but it was kind of like that you know so we yeah. really took it really seriously you know it was our career our life and and we wanted it to be really good and we knew we were gonna we were good you know we knew we had something and we just worked on it worked on it and our first gig was New Year's Eve at an Air Force base in New Hampshire and by November or December we were in London at Air Studios making our first record fantastic a year to, to you know play in the clubs get the record deal Electra helped us find Roy Baker to, to uh, produce and uh, he came and saw us at a, at a snowed out gig in Worcester at like Holy Cross College or something like that and it was like a student union or a gym we had like 12 people there in this big thing and we thought oh man we've blown it with him he's going to think we're just bunch of flops and he loved it yeah hey, i've seen that happen before i've seen bands where they had 600 care. people for their showcase and seen bands with 10 people yeah and, both and get a deal get huge deals exactly so he liked it and came you know backstage or wherever after we played and said you know he was almost like he was a bouncy kind of like animated guy and almost like a monty python character he was like oh my loves would you let's go to london and make a record you know, <laughs> you know and and that sounded pretty good to us. We'd never been anywhere and, uh, you know, came from humble backgrounds, all of us. Uh, there were no rich kids in the band and we hadn't traveled extensively. And so Queen's producer is asking us if we want to go to London and record at George Martin's studio. Dang. Which, that would probably be okay with us. We, we could yeah. probably handle that. I, you wouldn't see it happen nowadays, but I guess, you know, Electra really believed in the band from the beginning because they sent us to England 
put us up in this luxury house in the Mayfair district of London, the nicest area, with a couple that cleaned and cooked, you know, laid on what you'd see for a more, uh, already successful band. So they obviously they believed in us, and uh, they never interfered. They never, throughout the career of the band, they never like dropped into recording sessions. We never got that, mm, I don't hear a single nonsense or any of that kind of crap. Well, you guys had the songs. I mean, you started off with these killer songs, and then you paid all your dues and took notes and licked your wounds. Well, I guess and so. reformed and, and then took those songs to the next level. And, and, they, and I guess they must have figured after the first record why mess with these guys. <laughs> They're doing great. You know, so after the first record was so successful, they really just got it to just leave us alone and let us do what we want. I, they literally wouldn't hear the record till it was finished and they didn't worry about it at all and there was no like watching the clock or any of that kind of crap. They believed in us. You know, back then, if you didn't hit it out of the park on your first album, you'd get a second chance. Where nowadays, if, if the first record doesn't hit, they pretty much drop you usually. They drop you at the bus stop on the corner. But, you know, like <laughs> Jackson Brown's first record wasn't a huge hit or, you know, a lot of people that were very successful, oh, yeah. their first record wasn't necessarily a smash hit. So, but they got a, a chance to make a second one. The labels nurtured people and believed in them. There were things called developmental deals. Yeah, well, you guys didn't have that problem. <laughs> no, no, we had a gifted songwriter in the band. But, you know, we didn't know it was going to be successful or anything. We, we'd make, we were making the first record, and back at the house at the end of the, the session, we'd be hanging out, watching TV or whatever, and we remember having a conversation with some of the guys and just saying, you know, this is just so much fun. I hope we sell enough so that they'll let us make another one. Because <laughs> we didn't know. We didn't know what was going to happen. You don't know. And then the record came out and it was, you know, a hit. And uh, How did your life change as a year 24, 23? 23 when I made the record. 23 and the record came out. Yeah. Did you suddenly have like a bunch of money and everything and like no. notoriety? I mean... No, it takes a while for that stuff to catch up. But even then, like a year or two later, you're playing, must be playing big shows. You're all over the radio. How did yeah. that change your personal life? Well, I'll tell you. Bef before we made a record and had a record deal, I, f I thought to myself, if I could only make a record, if I could only get a record contract, make a record, my life will be perfect. All my problems will be solved. And so in some kind of bittersweet way there was a little bit of an anticlimactic feeling about it because it didn't fix everything i still go home by alone at night and be with my thoughts and be in a room by myself and and maybe millions of people bought the record but i was still just me and and it was frustrating because old friends and family would treat you different but you were still the same and you'd want to like connect with them and they'd be like oh what are you how could you be sad your life is perfect and this and that you know and I was kind of lonely because everybody in the band either had like a steady girlfriend who was married at that point, and I didn't have either. And so um, there was all the success happening, but I had no one to share it with in those days. And that was kind of like a, a, a little bit of melancholy in, in some ways. I was thrilled with the success of the band. I'm not trying to right. paint a picture that I was like depressed about it in any way, but I thought it was just going to like make everything in my life perfect, and it doesn't do that. I mean, even in... Interviews with the Beatles, you know, they'd say, we just wanted that piece of plastic in our hands. If we could have that piece of black plastic, everything would be great. And it is great, and it's incredible. But, you know, you still have to, you know, you still, if you were 
an unhappy person before that, you'll still be an unhappy. And if you were a happy person, it it doesn't it yeah. doesn't convert your your personality into something different. It won't fill up an empty heart. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. And that was my terrible segue, but I know that we don't have all day here. No, we don't. Before we go, i got to ask you, of course, about your new supergroup, Empty Hearts. Oh, <laughs> supergroup. I think of Blind Faith. That was well, the first time I heard that term. Well, the band is uh, it could, the way it formed. I'll start. Is the we all have a, had a mutual friend in Andy Babuke, and Andy wrote the Beatles gear book and the, the Rolling yeah. Stones gear and the Bigsby book, and and is considered an expert. You know, he he uh, identifies the authenticity of like you know there was the Dylan Strat and John Lennon's J160E they found after it was you know gone for. 40 something 50 years and he verifies it you know he's he'll look at a pattern in the tortoiseshell pickguard and match it up to photos or a, a bit of grain and match it up you know where he determined that a set of premier drums that were claimed to be Ringo's first kit weren't because he looked at the pattern on the shells and they didn't nothing matched he knows what he's doing anyway he's a great friend of mine I met him years and years ago I was doing Gibson clinics and I did one up in Rochester, New York at House of Guitars, and Andy worked there. And we just hit it off right away. You know, you just meet some people in life that you just like instantly. And we just became really good friends. And he was in a band called the Chesterfield Kings, which is not the most famous band of the four members of the Empty Hearts, but it was a cool band. They were kind of like a right. like a, a Nuggets kind of band, if you will, like a, like a you know, chocolate watch band and, uh, you know, like, what do you call that? Your know, garage rock, garage right. punk, whatever. Stones influenced, you know. But anyway, and he was a good friend, and he called me one day uh, about five years ago and uh, said, what do you think about having a band? I'm thinking about me and you, and I think I'm going to ask Clem from Blondie, Clem Burke, the drummer from Blondie, and my good friend, his good friend, Wally Palmer, the lead singer, rhythm guitar, and harmonica player from the Romantics. And we talked about it. We said, well, I said, okay, that sounds interesting. I wasn't really doing much. And uh, he said, my idea is like, to play the kind of music that reminds us of why we wanted to play music in the first place. And I said, that's a, nice, that's a really cool idea. That's a nice concept. He said, it has to be fun, and we're just going to work around everybody's schedule. When there's a little window of opportunity, when Blondie aren't touring, or you're not, or the Romantics aren't on the then we'll do the Empty Hearts. And that's how it's been. And it's been just really fun, just a, a, a pleasure project, you know. Great guys. We've all been around the block 
enough to know what, what time it is, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and we have realistic expectations. We really are doing it for our own enjoyment. We, we know that a bunch of guys in their 50s and 60s aren't going to suddenly be on MTV and blah, blah, blah. But we do it because we love it and people love the band and we play people flip you know and great songs it's really fun great it, tones yeah this is well I, that, <laughs> that was my pedal board for the record um that first record That's but killing. it's an awful lot of fun and it, and it, it gets for me it allows me to explore and show other sides of my playing that you would never suspect if you only knew my playing from the cars like a little while ago, I was playing some Jerry Garcia licks for you. You go, wow, I wouldn't expect you to know that. And, you know, there's nice. a lot of things that wouldn't have fit into the, the Cars format, you know, our style, uh, that people wouldn't expect. I snuck in a little country and a, some R&B licks, but they're camouflaged, you know. And they're, and they're juxtaposed into a different type of song. For instance, like Best Friends Girl, there's really nothing about that song that would suggest a rockabilly lick or anything. It's it was just an yeah. idea I had, off the wall idea. So anyway, the empty hearts is you know allows me to like explore my more you know just rock out and do all that Great stuff. Great songs. And, Let's know, listen I, to loud and clear. What a monster track! Oh, that oh, that was my riff. That. Awesome, yes. Yeah, I wrote yeah. it in E, but we ended up doing it in D, I think, for the vocals. It sounds monstrous in, in D. Before I let you go, I just want to tell you, you know, I was talking to another guitar player last night, a great guitar player, Tommy Pittum, mm-hmm. and he told me the story how he was out in like Bakersfield or something, chilling in the backyard, and maybe it was Fresno, I'm not sure, and it was near the county fair, and they had a lot of huge bands playing that summer or something, and on this particular day, he heard Credence Clearwater Revisited playing, yeah. and he heard this killer guitar playing wafting over his backyard fence. Oh. And so he, he's like, man, I'm going over there. So nice. And he went over to the fair, and it was you on guitar, <laughs> to his pleasant surprise. Yeah. He's like, wow, oh. there's Elliot. Yeah. That's the thing. People don't know that I'm really into like American rock and roll and rootsier stuff, you know, because the cars had that yeah. sleek image and was a bit Anglo, you know, in its, in its tilt, you know, it leaned towards like British stuff a lot or underground stuff. And... And so with Credence, you know, I mean, I played that stuff in high school. I loved Credence. It's really, I mean, in a way, it says something about my ability to adapt that I I never would have predicted that I would have ended up in a band like The Cars from the music I'd studied as a kid and tried to emulate. And that's fine because I brought that to the band and it added a dimension that would not have been there. You know, I think like the cars without me would have been Devo or you know whatever. You know, True. Yeah. you know, I added a certain amount of the rock element to it, harder, heavier element. I'm not saying that I'm responsible for it in any you know or whatever, but no, no, all of you. I brought, was just being yeah. me, doing what I do, and they were all doing what they do, and we all brought it in, and the recipe was a, a tasty one. You know, it worked totally. And that you know that's 
what can you say? You know, it's it's like Charlie Watts having a big band, and if you just listen to the Stones, you might not know that he was a jazz fanatic if you didn't read books and stuff about it. And here he is, his like true love is jazz, and whenever he gets a chance, he plays it. And it was kind of like you know, with me, you know, I just I loved Rick's songs and I got it, and I and and I had enough of a vocabulary, a musical vocabulary to come up with stuff that fit it. But it was, I thought I was going to end up being in like the band or something, the way I played, you know, or right. Taj Mahal or something. I didn't think I was going to end up in this sleek kind of techno kind of thing. It was not yeah. really what I was groomed for. I think that's what we all love about it is it's got the great guitar and the great songwriting and all that stuff, but it also has the, you blend the elements of whatever, like new wave and, and techno and Well, you know what's funny? Rock. A lot of, you know... <laughs> People dream of being a rock star and stuff like that. But at a certain period of my life in high school as a teenager and stuff and the people I was listening to, I dreamed of being a studio musician. And I pictured myself with a Telecaster in my lap and a set of headphones on, you know, being Reggie Young and, and Quinnell Dupree and, you know, Steve Cropper and all those kind of guys and, and Jesse Ed Davis and all the people I loved. And that's what I thought I was going to end up. So that's how, that's how far from where I actually did end up what I thought, what I, where I thought yeah, I was headed. You never know where you'll end up. I'm what do they say if you want to want to make God laugh? Tell them you have some plans. Right, yeah. tell them your plans. Yeah. <laughs> As we take it out here, let's listen to uh, some of your Tiki God stuff. Thank you. Elliot Easton, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. My pleasure. Thank you, Chief, for coming over and coming over to my place and doing it. And uh, that was absolutely my pleasure to come here to this. Uh, I, I, I'm awesome always happy dojo. to share any little bit of knowledge I have and uh, pay it forward. You know, that's what you got to do. Thank you.